Well, good evening, and it is wonderful to be back with you on Thursday nights. I know it's not, I've only, I wasn't here last week, but it feels like it's been ages uh, since I've been in here. We were at the Churchman Conference. Um, as I'm sure Rich told you, he came back and swooped right in and led that prayer time. So I'm thankful for that. I hate that I missed it. Uh, those prayer times are always super encouraging. Was it encouraging for you guys? Just pray together. Um, that's a sweet, sweet highlight. Um, well, tonight we're back in Philippians, and we're finally entering chapter 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Philippians chapter 3. And uh, anytime we cross from one chapter to another is a uh, reason to celebrate. Um, it shows us that we are actually making progress, despite what it might feel like. Um, and I'm saying that now because you're probably looking up on the screen and you're thinking, he's only going to cover one verse tonight. So uh, we're, really, we're really not making progress. But we are, okay? And even for me, you know, I, I generally like to do more than one verse. You know, rare occasions I'll just, I'll just do one. But what Paul says in this verse, where we're going to be at tonight, is so significant. It's so important that I want us just to slow down and really make sure that we understand what it is that Paul is saying. In fact, the, the theme of this verse, chapter 3, verse 1, it runs throughout the entire letter. It kind of flows through this letter under its surface, and it kind of bubbles up at different points like a spring. You know, it comes out, and it's just, it's at different points in the letter, it's obvious, but it's always there. The theme is always there. So what is that theme? You can see from the title, the theme is the theme of joy. And when you step back and you read the letter, it's hard to miss that joy is a key emphasis for the Apostle Paul. In Philippians alone, this theme comes up 16 different times. Four chapters. 16 times. And in fact, it's, it's estimated, thinking about Paul and this idea of joy, it's estimated that 40% of the New Testament's emphasis on joy comes from Paul alone. 40% of, his, of this emphasis on joy is bound up in, in Paul's writings. And it, it, in Philippians, you know, this theme of joy, it starts with Paul himself. So Paul's a happy dude, right? He's already told us back in chapter 1 that he prays with joy. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Chapter 1, verse 4. And not only is he happy in prayer, but he's also rejoicing as he watches the gospel go forward through the preaching of others. And he says, no matter what their motives are. Right? We remember that. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, you know, wrongly motivated or rightly motivated, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And even as he looks toward an uncertain future, his joy isn't diminished. Instead, he's confident that he's, going to con that he's going to continue on rejoicing. Why? Because he says, I will rejoice because he knows he's going to be rescued in the end by Christ. But as long as he's here, serving Christ and pouring out himself to meet the needs of others, that also brings him joy. Chapter 2, verse 17. Paul was thrilled to be used by the Lord for the good of others. And in fact, over in chapter 4, he calls the church itself, my joy and crown. And it flows the other way too for Paul. Not only does he take joy in serving and joy in the church, but he rejoices greatly when the church serves him. He rejoices in the church's own love for him when they met his needs. He says that over in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So it's clear that joy is important to Paul and that he is a man full of it. But he wants that joy to spread. He doesn't want to keep it to himself. He wants it to permeate the church. He wants the church to share in the joy he has, the joy he has in Christ. And at one point in this letter, Paul's talking about how happy he is to serve them. And then he just calls them to say, hey, join me in this joy. Notice in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also 
should be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 18. So he clearly wants the church to share in his joy. He wanted to see the church rejoice. And it was a deep motivation for him. It was a fundamental goal of his very ministry. In fact, Paul tells us that he's willing to forgo being with Christ so that he can hang around on this earth a little bit longer to help the Philippians grow in their joy. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, and here it is, joy in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 25. So not only does Paul want us to make progress in sanctification, to grow, he does, but he he highlights he also wants us to progress in our joy. So it's clearly a theme in Philippians, clearly important to Paul, clearly he wants the church to be permeated with these things. And here in our text tonight, Paul is going to call the Philippians, and us tonight in Boundless, to a life of consistent joy. He's calling us to a life of unassailable happiness in Christ. And even now as I say those words, your heart might be skeptical, right? We might meet those words with some discouragement. You know, like, what? Like, unassailable joy? Consistent happiness? That sounds so good, but so foreign to my experience, right? There's too many uncertainties. There's too many anxieties in my life. What if I can't ever decide on a major? Where am I going to work after I graduate? What if I don't meet someone? How can I rejoice when those huge life decisions are just hanging out there all the time? Or maybe you say, my life's too full of trouble, too full of sorrows, too many hardships. I just can't seem to catch a break. Every time I turn around, there's another difficulty, something else I have to process or solve, another dating relationship that didn't go like I expected it. How am I supposed to have unassailable joy in the face of these hardships and trials? Well, I'm sure the Philippians may have thought the same things. As you know, uh, they faced many hardships, and specifically financial hardships. This was a a poor church. The church was impoverished. There's a lot of opportunity for anxiety there. (laughs) When jobs are hard to come by, and you might not be sure where your next meal is going to come from, or where you're going to live, or where you're going to take your family. And not only that, but the church was under tremendous pressure from the state. Their opponents were trying to intimidate them into silence. So it's hard to rejoice when people in your church might get arrested for proclaiming Christ. This church was languishing in anxiety and probably wondering the same things that we are tempted to think as well. Joy? How are we going to get joy in light of these circumstances. And if we're just left to that, it might be tempting to conclude, you know, as we look around, that joy is, or this kind of joy that Paul's calling us to is impossible in light of all these threats, in light of these hindrances and these understandably difficult situations. But then there's Paul. The true enigma Here's a man like us, a sinner saved by grace, sitting in prison full of unassailable joy. He's full of gladness in some of the worst circumstances humanly imaginable. He's in prison. His life is hanging in the balance and really kind of in the control of the whims of unbelievers. He's at risk of disease and malnourishment. He likely never sees sunlight. He's overwhelmed by the stench of urine and excrement. He's unable to get clean, fresh air or to get a good night's rest. And yet, he looks us in the face with a smile, with otherworldly joy. It's this Paul who in this text calls the church to rejoice. So what does that mean? 
It means it's possible. It's possible for every single one of us here tonight to learn what Paul will later call the secret. But what we're going to see tonight is that, according to Paul, joy is not just possible, but it's an absolute necessity. Joy is necessary. Without joy, we are in danger. We're at risk, Paul's going to say. Joylessness opens us up to all kinds of temptations. And yet, the practice of joy is one of Paul's chief remedies. It's one of the greatest protections that God's given us for our souls. And so what I want to do tonight is just camp out on this little verse where Paul calls us to a life of consistent joy. We'll make a few observations from this verse, and then we'll finish up with some thoughts uh, kind of practically on how we might pursue this. All right, look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. He's turned the corner here. He's, he's finished up his travel plans, and, and, and now he's, he's turned the corner. He's not ending the letter, but he's kind of transitioning. That's finally, that's what this word means, but it's sort of a transitional word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So as we open chapter 3, Paul calls the church to a life of joy. It's the start of a new and beautiful section, a section that has to do with joy throughout. We'll unpack that, the rest of this chapter in the following weeks. But tonight we're going to limit ourselves just to this opening verse, and we're going to make three initial observations about joy. All right, so we're just going to observe just three things. The first one is that joy is a choice, it's not merely a feeling. Joy is a choice, not merely a feeling. So Paul tells us, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So where am I getting that from? Where am I taking that observation from? Well, it's really an implication from the fact that Paul is commanding us to rejoice. It's an imperative. You see that? He says, rejoice. It's a command. It's not Paul's suggestion to do when we feel like it. To rejoice, then, is an act of the will. It's a conscious choice. It's something that we volitionally either do or don't do. It's something he intends us to cultivate. And we're going to talk more about that at the end. But when it comes to choosing to rejoice, we need to nail down what it is that Paul means here. Is he commanding a particular emotional state? Some would define joy as a, as a state of joy and gladness, right? Joy is a state of joy. <laughs> okay? Uh, state, a state of joy and gladness. I definitely think there's an emotional aspect to joy. We don't typically think of somebody like stoically rejoicing. You know, like, I'm rejoicing in, in my heart. You know, that's it. You know, that rejoicing doesn't come with like a blank face, right? It's it's it often includes feelings of happiness for sure. But the point here is that joy is more than a feeling. It's more than just a mere feeling. Here's how one writer articulates it. I think he captures the biblical data very well. He says, Rejoicing, of course, is not a fleeting happiness, a mere, I included here, a mere feeling, okay? That was my inclusion. A mere feeling or something superficial. Rather, it is a genuine, deep, inner attitude of good cheer, hope, and optimism. I like that. And it finds its external expression despite adverse circumstances. And what I want you to hone in in this definition is this, this middle part that I've underlined here, this deep attitude of good cheer, this attitude of hope and optimism. I think that gets at the heart of what joy is, at least in the sense that Paul's commanding it here. He's exhorting us to adopt this optimism, this attitude of good cheer. 
And something particularly helpful to point out is that since it's a command, our choice to, re- to, to rejoice is a matter of obedience or disobedience. Make sense? In other words, not to not rejoice altogether. Okay? To give in to an attitude of sort of settled pessimism or hopelessness or despondency, that's actually sin. And as we're going to see, the way out is through repentance. It's through renewed thinking. And it's acting on what we know, not by continuing to act on what we feel. Now don't miss how incredibly hopeful this is. Like, massively hopeful. This is paradigm shifting. How so? Well, because you are not imprisoned by your emotions. You're not held captive by your depressive feelings. You're not trapped in a dungeon of despondency. There is a way out, and it's through choosing to rejoice. It's through a spirit-empowered act of your will, a choice that's made in response to what you know to be true. In other words, you don't have to wait around on your emotions to change before you can rejoice. And that's incredibly hopeful. (laughs) Now, before we leave this point, I want want to make sure you don't misinterpret what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying we can't have sorrow about grieving circumstances. So you remember what Paul said about Epaphroditus last time we were together. Just a few verses earlier, Paul said that if Epaphroditus would have died, it would have been what for him? Remember? Sorrow upon sorrow. A sorrow that was heaped upon more sorrows for him. In other words, Paul would have been crushed by the death of Epaphroditus, even though he knew that to die was gain, to be with Christ. And that sorrow, he says, the way he, his language, that would have been added on top of an existing pile of sorrows. So you think, well, what's the pile, right? Well, imprisonment, malnourishment, I mean, like, like we rattle off the list, right? Paul had been crushed by the death of Epaphroditus. So although Paul had some sorrows, apparently, though, these sorrows are not incompatible with joy. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul describes his life with this interesting paradox. You probably know it. As sorrowful, yet what? Always rejoicing. As sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. This means then that we aren't emotionally unaffected by our circumstances or our sin. Did you catch that? We're not, not emotionally unaffected by our circumstances or even our sin. In this life, there will be suffering, trials, and hardships. There will be unmet expectations. There will be rattling pressures that causes significant amounts of concern in your life. There will even be atrocities that you may have to face and experience. And that causes sorrow, grief, and concern in our hearts. And that is totally normal. So when does it become a problem? When does it become sin? Well, I would say that it becomes sin when sorrow becomes untethered from faith. When it's unhinged, when faith's no longer pulling that wagon. When unbelief is driving the sorrow when we doubt God's promises, when we get mopey and self-pitying because we think God's holding out on us, when we become resentful because we think God is not providing what we need, when we grow afraid because we think that God has abandoned us, these are incompatible with joy. You can't simultaneously rejoice and self-pity. Like, they don't... They don't work. They don't, come, they don't go together. 
But you can simultaneously sorrow and have hope. Or, like Paul says, sorrow with hope. And so, I just want to point that out so we don't misinterpret what, what Paul's saying here. Like there's some, some sort of blind optimism that it doesn't, it's not affected emotionally by the sorrows of life. It runs far deeper than that. And like we said, is, a, is sort of a settled optimism. A settled hope, an attitude of good cheer that can, can persevere through these external circumstances. And so that's our first observation, that joy is a choice. And we see that by the fact that this, it's commanded of us here. But you might be wondering, how can I rejoice when it seems like there's nothing to rejoice in in my life? Nothing to be happy about. Well, if Paul calls us to rejoice, and later he's going to call us to rejoice always, that implies that we must have a constant source of joy. A source that's outside of us. A source that, can always, that we can always tap into for joy. And that's exactly what Paul says we've got in Christ. That's our second observation from this text, that joy is sourced in Christ. And not ultimately in our circumstance. Joy is sourced in Christ and not ultimately in our circumstances. It's pretty self-evident here in the text. Paul calls us to rejoice in the Lord. Paul's referring to Jesus. And we know that because he identifies Jesus as the Lord six times in this letter. Paul's saying then that the Lord Jesus Christ is our ultimate source of unending and indestructible joy. And Paul's own life was a living, a living demonstration of it too. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Notice the phrasing he uses here. He tells us to rejoice in, in the Lord. Okay, do you see that? He's saying that we rejoice because, as believers, we are, here it is, in union with Christ. We rejoice in the Lord, in union with Him. Because, or we could say, because of our union with Christ. He's going to go on to unpack this glorious thought in the heart of chapter 3. But we're going to get there, eventually. But to be in union with Jesus means that we have, to use Paul's language just here in this chapter, we have gained Christ. We are found in Him, verses 8 and 9. It means that Christ's own righteousness, the perfect spotless righteousness He earned, is ours, verse 9. We didn't earn it. In fact, to get His righteousness, we have to repudiate our own righteousness. Like the song said, we've got to leave it at the door. We can't scrub ourselves clean. We must come to Him in humble faith, trusting what He has obtained for us, allowing Him to cleanse us and clothe us with His own righteousness. So union with Christ then is the greatest privilege because we've been tethered to Christ in a living and abiding relationship of love. Christ is now with us, never to abandon us. Christ is working all things together for our ultimate good. Christ loves us more than we could ever imagine. Christ knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. And because of our union with Jesus, this means we've been brought into God's very people. The people who are blessed. The people who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. We are part of the true and renewed Israel. Or as he's going to say in verse 3, we are part of the true circumcision. The people of God who will reign with Christ. All this is because of our union with Jesus. Not because of anything we've done. And everything we just talked about, these are fixed and stable realities. They're truths that we can take to the bank. Christ's attitude of love toward us, that does not change. It doesn't grow, it doesn't diminish. It's fixed upon His people. He is always with us. He's always providing for us. He's always upholding our faith. He's always working out ahead of us in divine providence. 
This is what it means to be in union with Christ. The greatest and most unspeakable privilege in the universe. So that means then, when it comes to joy, we've got an eternal source for it. We've got a well that never runs dry, a spring that's always bubbling over with glad water. Our trials, sorrows, sufferings, disappointments, they cannot untether us from Christ. Even if we suffer to death, even if we starve or go naked, Paul says this cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because of our union with Him. Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, he says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Through ourselves? No, through Him who loved us. Through our union with Him. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, in union with Him, with Christ our Lord. That's joy-inducing. And this means then that the most important things in the world, our relationship with God in Christ, the preservation of our souls, our resurrected state in the new creation, these things cannot be touched. And this means we should never be mopey. Okay? We should never be spiritual Eeyores. We should never self-pity. We should never resent the Lord. We should never descend into despondency. We always have a reason to be of good cheer. We always have a reason to adopt an attitude of optimism and hopefulness. Even when our hearts are ripped out in sorrow. Why? Because the big things haven't changed. The most important things are untouchable. Christ is ours. His good hands control our trials. And we win in the end. Now this is also why later in the letter, when Paul calls us to rejoice yet again, he will add another little word. Any guesses? Rejoice always. <laughs> always. In which means in every circumstance. Whether they're happy ones or sad ones. Now, when I was younger in the faith, I used to read this and kind of grow discouraged. You know, it's like, rejoice always. Whoa! You know, like Paul was giving me this unrealistic standard. But as I've matured, I, I've seen this is one of the most hopeful and encouraging commands in all of Scripture. You know why that is? Because it means that we always have a capacity for joy. We always have a capacity to have our hearts refreshed in Christ. That always, in every time, in every season, no matter what has happened... God wants me to rejoice in Him. It's as though through this command, Christ Himself stands ready to provide His joy. He is ready to refresh our hearts in His love. He beckons us to come and entrust ourselves to Him and to allow Him to carry our burdens for us. This is a life-giving command. So practically speaking, this is one of the first things I think about in the mornings as I begin my time of communion with the Lord. It's one of my first responsibilities to actively rejoice in the Lord by faith. In my early days as a Christian, I used to be very introspective, you know, too introspective. I would often have doubts, you know, I'd say, oh, I like love, I like patience, I like everything, right? And how do I know I'm a Christian? How can I be in Christ? But when I realized that because of the gospel, because of, that Christ was united to me and I to Him, 
That changed my perspective. My first task then was to, to get in line with that union, right? To remember and call that to mind and bring, bring that to bear. To receive that sovereign care. To confess any sin that was gunking up my relationship with Him and to rejoice in Christ. And this is not unique to me. I picked this up from a man named George Mueller. An evangelist, probably most of you know who that is. He uh, started a bunch of orphanages back in the 1800s. And listen to how he viewed his primary business at the start of each day. Here's what he said, quote, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. I love that. The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The Lord. And if you know anything about George Mueller, this was not some kind of trite or superficial happiness. It's like happiness is kind of like, his life went great, you know? <laughs> Just read his autobiography. That thing was, it was a brutal, uh, lot, full of suffering, okay? He is talking about here that deep and abiding joy that comes from knowing and trusting Christ and actively receiving his love day in and day out. Rejoicing in Christ was his first and, and, and great and primary business, he says. And I, I love that, and I would encourage you guys to make that the same, the same aim of your, of your day in the beginning. So take some promises of Christ and union with him and, just, and rehearse those before you get into your Bible reading. Rehearse those to yourself and, and thank the Lord. Rejoice in him around those things, no matter how you feel, because those are true. If you're a believer in Christ, that is true of you this morning. This evening. In the morning. Right, there we go. We got it. Now, let me say a final thing uh, that's related to this, this observation here. You'll notice that in point number two, I say that our joy is sourced in Christ, not ultimately, you say that's in italics, not ultimately in our circumstance. That implies there's at least some joy to be had in our circumstances. Right? That's because it's true. There's a sense in Scripture that our joy is enhanced and sometimes even diminished based on our circumstance. And that's a natural expectation. But even though it might be diminished, it's never erased completely. So let me give you just a few, a few examples of that, uh, even right here in this letter of Philippians. We've already seen that when the church obeys, over in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says that his joy is completed. That's interesting language. Completed. It's made complete. He calls the church, hey, make my joy complete by doing these things. Huh. So there's a sense in which the obedience of the church brings Paul's joy to its fullest expression. That's enhancement language. And it implies then that if the church goes off the rails in disobedience, that his joy is diminished. That his joy is not all that it could be. So his joy is sourced in Christ, yes, but it's enhanced, so to speak, by a circumstance in life. In this case, it's the church's obedience. We've, all, we've also already seen that the Philippians' joy was diminished when they heard that Epaphroditus was sick. Remember that? They were very concerned for Epaphroditus, and rightly so. Paul said that, that he sent him back. Paul said, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you so that you will rejoice. So their joy was occasioned by the receiving of Epaphroditus, the circumstance. That impacted their joy in some sense. Again, it wasn't the ultimate source of their joy, but the return of their beloved elder, one of their pastors, that, that enhanced their joy. See him safe and sound. So why am I making that distinction? Well, Because God intends us to rejoice in his good gifts, as well as rejoice in him. God is not miserly, and He loves to bless His children. And He doesn't give us these good gifts sometimes for our sake, right? So that we don't idolize them and fall headlong into more sin. But He's going to blow it open in the new creation. There's going to be nothing withheld from God's people when we have the capacity to receive it, enjoy it, and not idolize it. So when our circumstances are favorable, though, even in this life, when God blesses us with some earthly good, okay, when you get that canceled class and you're able to sleep in a little bit more, right? 
when that girl actually says yes to you and you get to go on a date, when you score that good grade on an exam, when you get a little extra bonus at Christmas from work, all those things, those are blessings and we ought to rejoice in God for them. Because God is ultimately the one who gave them. It's not the bedrock of our joy, but we can and should rejoice in these things nonetheless. And this is exactly what Paul does at the end of this letter. When he received money, right, from the Philippians. Notice his language. He says, but I rejoiced, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the monetary gift that they gave him. Now he's saying, now that didn't, I wasn't discontent. He goes on to clarify that. I wasn't discontent if I starved to death, but definitely nice that I'm able to eat. And, and uh, you know, he's, he, he, he mentions that. So he's rejoicing, and he even says here, greatly rejoicing that they shared his trouble. So, up to this point, we've been highlighting the sweet blessing of this command to rejoice, okay? But not only is it a great privilege, but it's also a great necessity. That's because Paul finishes out this verse by telling us that joy is a safeguard for our souls. That's our third observation from this verse. Joy is a safeguard for our souls, It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul's essentially saying he's not embarrassed to have to belabor this point of rejoicing. It's not a trouble to him, or it's not not an embarrassment to him to say these things multiple times. Because back in chapter 2, verse 18, he's already told the church to rejoice then. He tells the church to rejoice here, and he's going to tell them to rejoice again two more times in chapter 4. <laughs> so he's clearly repetitious. He's not embarrassed to keep on telling them to rejoice, to, to keep writing the same things to them like he says here. But why not? Because it's safe, he says. It's our safeguard, because rejoicing in Christ keeps the Philippians and us from danger. Now, that's an interesting statement. How many of you would think of rejoicing as a practice that actually protects you? That's worth meditating on. So what does Paul mean here? How does rejoicing keep us safe, spiritually speaking? Well, Paul's going to go on in this passage to elaborate just how, it does, how, how rejoicing in Christ alone keeps us, <laughs> keeps us very safe. Right? So look, he's going to warn us in verse 2. Look out for the dogs! Look out for the evildoers! Look out for those who immediately... He's, he's going to get into that. And people have said, wow, that's a jarring... Like, you're talking about joy? And then all of a sudden, yeah! Like, Watch out! And he says it three times. Very uncharacteristic of Paul, you know? And it's just like, bah! Like, where does this come from? But it's the point is that joy is the safety. It keeps you safe. And you've got to look out for these other things that are threatening your joy and threatening the purity of the gospel. So he's going to get into that. But for now, let me just say, I think it guards us from at least two pitfalls. Okay? I think it protects us from unbelief in trials. You're going to have to hang with me here. This Let me just unpack this for you a second. So in Scripture, trials are a threat. Trials threaten to undo us. They, they, they threaten our, you know, our faith, our trust in the Lord. When we face difficulty, we're tempted in all kinds of ways to distrust God. Right? We're tempted to grumble, we're tempted to self-pity, we're, we're tempted to all kinds of things when we hit a trial. But when we choose to rejoice in our trials, if we're looking at this command and we're thinking, oh, I've got to rejoice, then that drives us to faith. 
It drives us to see God's good hand in our trials. Because we can't rejoice unless we're going to actually believe God. It drives us to see what God is about in this trial. About what he, to see what he's producing in the trial. To rejoice in a trial, Romans 5.3, means we've got to have faith that God is in it. That God is ordaining it for his good purposes in our lives. And that God is producing things like endurance and patience and every other good fruit through this trial. So take a trial in your life right now, or something that you've hard that you faced. Something that, you know, has threatened your, your joy. Okay, again, hypothetical situation that's probably all too real for a number of you. Okay, ladies, you were dating a guy. You thought you were going to marry him. He changed his mind, and he broke things off. That's incredibly painful. And I'm sure your first thought was not, hey, I should rejoice in this. Right? That's not my first instinct when I hit a trial. But once you've oriented, once you've grieved a bit and you've, you've experienced some sorrow over that shattered hope, if you're going to get to the point of obedience here and rejoicing in that trial, guess what you have to do? You have to start renewing your mind. You have to start filling up your heart with God's love for you and His promises of that. With God's statements that He controls every situation. That He's good. He has good plans for you in this trial. You have to load your heart up with how He's teaching you to trust Him at a deeper level than you have before. How He's producing glorious fruit in you through this trial. You need to be tracing out all the things that God is doing in your heart. Fruit He's producing, opportunities He's giving you to glorify Him and become a, a more glorious person through the difficulty. And then every time that you're, self, that you're tempted to self-pity, every time you're tempted to nurse that hurt, every time you go back, every time then you go back to those truths and you choose to rejoice in God. And you know what's happening when you do that. What's happening is you're being protected from unbelief. Your act of faith, your act of obedience, of choosing to rejoice because of what is true, that is preserving your soul. That is keeping you from being hardened by your trial. And so the very act of rejoicing becomes a safeguard for you. It guards you from unbelief in your trials. That's one way, but it also guards us in another way. It protects us from unbelief in sin or when we sin. When a believer sins, it's definitely a grieving thing, similar to a trial. Trial hits and where there's often sorrow. We're grieved, right? But when we sin, we face a new set of temptations after that sin. We've talked about those before. How are we going to respond to our sin? Are we going to hide it? Are we going to run from God? Are we going to refuse God's love because we feel unworthy? And sin, if not dealt with properly, that can erode our assurance. So if we've sinned, right, and, then, and, and we've sinned in some way, but now we're looking at this command and we're coming to God in our communion time, our Bible time, and we're thinking, I've got to rejoice. He's commanding me to rejoice. What does that do? We're now forced to deal with our sin in a way that leads to joy. It keeps restoration as the focus. It helps us to see God's heart for us in it. God wants us to return to our joyful communion with Him. Rejoice always. In every circumstance. Even after you've sinned. You've got to work through it, right? We're not just saying just ignore your sin and just pretend that everything's okay. You have to work through your sin and humbly confessing it. Instead of hiding our sin or blaming others for it, Christ beckons us to own it. He beckons us to come to Him in full admission of our sin, taking personal responsibility for it. And He meets us there with forgiveness every time. He causes the bones He has broken, like David says, to rejoice 
in the joy of our salvation. Psalm 51. We're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded that Christ has paid it all, that He stands as a propitiation for our sins, that we have absolutely nothing to boast in except Him. And so actively rejoicing and starting your day that way, it forces you to deal with your sin in a way that's redemptive and to cast your hope fully on the gospel, fully on Christ, fully on the grace that He gives you. And that means then that rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in your union with Him by faith, that guards you from pride too. It guards you from thinking you can please God with your own righteousness apart from Christ's. As we're going to see next time, it keeps us, it guards us from false teaching that would have us add to the gospel of grace our own works. It guards us from thinking that we could contribute something to our salvation or to God's favor or to our union with Christ. Rejoicing keeps us trusting in Christ alone. So it guards us in the most blessed way. So not only is joy a sweet privilege, but joy is a necessity, right? It's a safeguard for our souls. It's guarding us from unbelief. Now, I want to end tonight by, by just briefly considering how we might cultivate joy. I know we've been taught, we kind of talked around it a little bit, but I want to give you some, some practical takeaways. You know, I found, I, I looked at this text, so how, how to cultivate joy. There's a text in Romans 15 that is very, very interesting and uh, pretty insightful. We get some sweet insight on how joy is produced and cultivated. I think I have it on the screen here. You see that? Yeah. Romans 15, 13, it's actually one of Paul's prayers for the church in Rome. And he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So how do we, how do we cultivate joy? Well, just skimming off the top here, from this passage, we see here that joy is ultimately from God, right? And you think about joy as a fruit of the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit in our lives. And so we should mimic Paul here and and pray for it. Paul asks God to fill the Roman church with joy. So we should pray for this ourselves. We should pray for this for each other. God is the God of hope, he says. He's the God of hope, which means he's going to answer our prayers and fill us with joy. It's his will that we rejoice. He wants to give his joy, and he will answer our prayers. But notice something else. God doesn't just zap us with joy. How does he answer this prayer? Notice how joy comes to us. He fills us with hope and joy, ESV says, in believing. Literally, as we believe or or by believing would be better, by believing. What's he saying there? Paul is saying that faith, faith is the channel, the conduit for joy. Active, vibrant trust in God. Vibrant trust in God's promises. Vibrant trust in God's word. That's where faith comes from. That's where joy comes from. Choosing to trust God then over how you feel or what you might think about a given circumstance, that faith will lead to joy. It's how God answers the prayer. It's the means God uses to grant joy. So this implies then that our fundamental question is not, am I joyful? It's not wrong to ask that. The fundamental question is, am I trusting God? See the difference? So often I see younger believers, especially of the the Piper fold, they get into a tailspin, okay, because they aren't as joyful as they think they should be. And we're not, none of us are as joyful as we should be, okay? But the answer is not to focus on our emotions. The answer is to focus on the truth of what God has said. And Piper would agree. Okay? So don't mishear me saying that. I'm just like slamming John Piper. Okay? 
He would agree with that, but he gets often misinterpreted. And the focus becomes joy versus faith. When we focus on truth, on faith in the truth, and we orient our lives to what God has said instead of what we feel, that's, ironically, when did the joy come? It comes as we believe, like Paul says here. Just like every other Christian virtue, by the way. As we sink our teeth into the hope we have in Christ, and as we live like it's true. Okay, so that brings us to our third, whoa, trusting God's promises. This is number two. Totally missed that one. And then number three, coming out of that faith, that faith is driving this choice here. The faith chooses to be optimistic based on those promises. Faith chooses to be optimistic because that's what the promises imply. You might have to rehearse this to yourself moment by moment if you're in a trial, especially if you're in one of those like very, very heavy circumstances. They're difficult. And Mary and I have gone through trials and, and they, they're, they're consistent you know, at different points. I mean, they come, they come and go, but I know that it's tempting sometimes for us to be very anxious. And I know what that feels like. Sometimes this choice to be optimistic is a moment-by-moment choice. You know, your insides feel like they're about to fly apart because you're so afraid. (laughs) And it's just this rehearsing. God, I know you're good. I know you're with me. I'm choosing to be optimistic. I'm choosing to do the next thing in front of me by faith because I know this is going to work out in the end. And the reality here is that we cannot fret and rejoice at the same time. They're mutually incompatible. And so we're finding ourselves preserved as we choose to trust and as we choose to be of good cheer, knowing that the most important things have not changed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we're consistently stunned by how well you shepherd us, even from one verse. And um, we confess that we're not as joyful as we ought to be. And that's because our faith is weak. So we would pray that you would strengthen our faith, help us to look to you and look to your promises um, as we encounter the good and the bad circumstances of our lives. And uh, may we glorify you by choosing to rejoice, being a happy church, a happy ministry that is content and we look to you. We're willing to lay our lives down for the good of others. We pray it in Christ's name.